Well, uh, friends, you might want to have open in front of you your uh, bulletin, and there's a, um, a outline to follow that might help you to follow along with what we're saying. We're looking at big questions, tough questions, and uh, I'll talk more about the question that we're going to face in a few moments' time. So how about I pray for us and ask God to help us today. Father, we thank you for your uh, mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God of forgiveness. And, Lord, you're a God who gives us so many good things. So, Lord, we pray today as we hear your word and we respond to it, we pray that we would be, um, uh, you would open our hearts and minds to be obedient to you and what you've got to say to us. Thank you, God, that you're God who speaks to us and you love us dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week I, I got a bit of time uh, surfing, which was nice, um, and uh, I went down to the farm and I, got, I went surfing with 300 of my newest friends. Uh, that's, it was busy, to say the least. It looked a little bit like this, I think. That's the farm these days. Anyway, I'll try to keep positive. Um, now the problem is, of course, is that the farm, well, not everyone knows the rules. So this is a community service announcement for a moment. If, if someone is surfing on the wave or paddling for the wave and they're the closest to where the wave is breaking, it's their wave. Okay, got it everyone? Um, but if you, so if you start surfing in front of them, you're dropping in, it's called, and you're spoiling the fun. It's actually not very safe as well. It's a big no-no. Now, of course, this, you can, my tone of voice tells you that this happened to me a number of times. It's a bit like this. It happened to me a number of times on Thursday morning. Uh, surfing along happily, there I was, going across. This is all right. I finally got a wave on my own. Oh, no, someone's joined me. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, I can see you're in front of me now. Um, it spoils the fun, you see. You're meant to take turns. Uh, it causes problems. It's not very safe. You see, the rules, and I guess we could call them boundaries. I might stick to that word today, but more about boundaries. The, the boundaries are there so that we stay safe, so that we enjoy the waves, so that we enjoy surfing. Have a look at this picture here. This is another one of my recreational loves. Uh, here's a picture of rugby being played, if you didn't know what that is. Now, contrary to what you might think, these men are having the time of their lives. <laughs> uh, and possibly contrary to what you think, none of them, are, well, everyone is abiding by the rules. Everyone is, as far as I can tell at that moment. Uh, what a great time they're having. Now, if the boundaries weren't there in rugby, and you're probably thinking, oh, are there boundaries in rugby? Are there rules? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, if they weren't there, I can tell you there would be carnage, absolute carnage, mayhem, people taking advantage of one another, physical, verbal abuse, and most importantly, no one would be enjoying the game. When we step outside the boundaries, when we ignore the boundaries that are put in place by the creator of the game, well, that gift of the game is spoiled. Now today, yeah, we're talking about sex. And the principle is the same. God, the, the creator of sex, has given us good boundaries so that we can enjoy that gift that he's given us so that we can be safe, so that we can feel secure and loved, and I can go on. So here's today's tough question. Why are Christians so weird about sex? 
Now, originally I thought the question should be why are Christians so uptight about sex? I was thinking Ned Flanders and that type of you know, person. Um, but that's not really what people think these days. Frankly, Christians are seen as weird when it comes to sex. Here's what I think the question boils down to. Why do Christians insist in keeping sex in the context of one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship called marriage? I think that's what it boils down to, which is so different to our modern secular culture today in their thinking about sex. Here's the first thing we want to say. The first thing we want to say is that the Bible has always been weird about sex. It's always been weird about sex. So the Old Testament preached a markedly different view for sex than, say, the Egyptian or the Assyrian cultures surrounding them. In the New Testament, Christian teaching and biblical teaching and attitudes about sex was very different to the Roman or the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded it. So therefore, Christians or Christian biblical teaching doesn't need to move with the times because it was never preaching the morality of its time, ever. The vision the Bible casts for sex and marriage and human flourishing always seems to come from another place. That is not the cultural view of the day. So the Bible's weird, yeah. But let's be clear, uh, the modern secular view of sex is weird too. Uh, and, and, um, and what is weird? Well, I came across this cool little acronym in a discussion of this very question during the week. Weird is white, educated, industrial, rich, democratic. That's weird. <laughs> you see, that's who we are in modern 21st century Australia, uh, or, or some commentators just call it the West, you know, that sort of term. That's what we are. It's weird. When it comes to our modern cultural attitudes about sex, we're in a minority in the world today, and, even, and an even smaller minority in human history. The way our culture tends to think about and categorise sex today is completely unknown to and completely at odds with the vast majority of human thought. The problem is people don't tend to recognise this. Many just assume that our white, educated, industrial, rich, democratic worldview of sex is the measuring stick of how all sex should be viewed. So in this context, and let's say that's, that's our context, Secular people may see the Christian view as very narrow, very restricted. One man, one woman for life, it seems so limited. But in fact, much like the Bible's view, the truth is, today's weird view of sex is just as much an anomaly in our world and in its history. Now, this discussion I was following, um, it's quite good, then went on to say, uh, I'll quote, so maybe... Maybe all of us need to try and bring a bit of humility to this discussion. We're all sexual weirdos. It's strange, isn't it? But I see the point they're making. So if you follow Jesus, if you're someone who's a Christian person, you follow him, uh, let's not clutch, what's the phrase, clutch our pearls and act or shock that the world disagrees with the Bible. It always has. Nothing's changed. And if you're not yet sure about Jesus, you don't call yourself a Christian, 
Don't be surprised that Christians disagree with the modern secular view of sex. Pretty much everyone else in the history of humanity always has. But can I also encourage you, and in fact, really, if you're a Christian person too, can I encourage you also not to get caught up in thinking that sexual ethics or sexual morality is what's at the heart of the Christian faith. It's that, that we think that sexual morality or sexual ethics is actually what defines us. It doesn't define us. It's not what's at the heart of the Christian faith. So if you're a Christian person, if you're not a Christian person, if you want to know what Christians really believe, please don't focus on sex. We'll see in a moment what to focus on. Okay, well, with that all in mind then, uh, it's useful for us to spend a few moments summing up this Christian view of sex, a a biblical framework. And in so doing, what I'd love you to do is compare and contrast what we know of the secular view and then ask what beliefs and practices provide the most meaningful and most secure framework for sex. That's our question. We're doing a compare and contrast. What What provides the most meaningful and most secure framework for sex? Now, it seems to me there are five foundations to the Bible's view on sex. There might be more, but I've picked out five. Um, We'll just stick with five for today. Here's the first one, and you can see them in your outline as well. Here's the first. God is love. 1 John 4, and I've I've, um, put most of it up on the screen there. 1 John 4 expresses succinctly the nature of God. You can see it in red in verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons eternally united in a relationship centred on love. So, for example, in love, God the Father sends the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. John 3.16. In love, Jesus gives the Spirit the helper, he calls the spirit, to teach us and guide us, to help us to love his word more and more and to assure us of his presence. Now 1 John 4 continues that if you want to know what love is, well, get to know God, who sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, this is love. See the start of verse 10? This is love. Not that we love God, that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. But if we compare that with the secular view of ultimate reality, well, there's no great designer, there's no creator, there's no God. There is simply matter and energy, and its ultimate purpose, well, as most uh, atheists would say, its ultimate purpose is meaningless. Pitiless indifference uh, is one phrase that gets used. We're just animals. Yeah, we're more complicated and intricate ones, yes, but we're just animals. Okay, let's look at our second foundation to the Bible's view on sex. History is a love story. It's a love story between God and his people. So it begins with creation, humanity and God, man and woman in perfect loving relationship, but with their disobedience. So Genesis chapter 3, the fall eating of the fruit they weren't meant to eat, with their disobedience, our relationship with God and our relationships with each other were spoiled. They were stained by sin. So from this point on, God was working to reverse the effects of sin and save his people. 
And even though, as the prophet Hosea writes, his people had been unfaithful, like an adulterous wife, God would not abandon his bride. And so God sent his son, Jesus, who would give himself up for God's, who would give himself up for God's church, his people. Such sacrificial love would define and shape the love between a husband and a wife. And so Christian marriage, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, would point people to the cross of Christ. It would demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church. It would reflect the cross. And one day when our earthly marriages are no more, we will be having been like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, Revelation 21 says, we will be presented with God to be with God forever, a new perfect creation, a perfect marriage, if you like, the great wedding banquet that Jesus invites us to. It's the ultimate happily ever after story. But the secular view of history is quite different. So it says, it says history is ruthless, it's won or lost, and it's up there for the taking. History is determined by the powerful. It's quite a different, isn't it? Different uh, look at history. Third foundation. Gender is a gift. It's not self-created. Gender is a gift. It's not a gift voucher. Uh, if someone gives you a particular book, it's because they know you and it's, and it's right for you. Now, you, might, you may not particularly like the book that you've been given and it might take you a while to get into it but you trust the one who gave it to you. People today tend to think of gender as being like a gift voucher in a bookshop. So what you get is not set in stone. Uh, you can choose whatever you like. So it's, it's all on us to try and define our genders. But a gift voucher is, well let's be honest, a gift voucher is not a great present, is it? Not a great present. It's okay, but it's not a great present. And it leaves us with a bewildering amount of choices. It almost becomes a burden. What do I spend it on? What do I do with it? The Christian view is good news. As created beings, our genders have been given to us. Now, I press the pause button just for a moment there because that will probably open up a huge can of worms if you're thinking through it. But that's all we've got time to talk about today. So if you want to talk more about it, come and talk to me. Um, I can point you to good things to read. Uh, and, uh, and don't forget, if you'd like, you can fill out the question, the comment card and put a question in the little box at the back for next week. Um, that's a big topic. Let's look at our fourth foundation, though. That's what we're trying to do. What's the foundations for the Christian view of sex, this biblical framework we're trying to grapple with? Well, the fourth one is our bodies matter. Our bodies matter. Now, in the context of fleeing from sexual immorality, this is what the Apostle Paul writes, and this is the passage that... Uh, I think Phil read this one, didn't you? Yeah, Phil read this one. No, no, Val read this one. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You see, our bodies matter, God says. There's something sacred about our bodies and something even more sacred about our bodily unions. That's a term that Paul uses. Uh, he refers to, really, unity in that way. Um, 
uh, in 1 Corinthians 6. It's another term used to, to describe the sexual relationship. Uh, and again, it comes from the one flesh description that, of Christian marriage that Jesus picks up uh, from Genesis chapter 2. So a union of bodies is a sacred union of lives because our bodies are temples housing the Holy Spirit, God, in us. So in the Corinthian context, the, the people in the church were arguing their bodies didn't matter. So they were super spiritual. We're so spiritual that physical things don't matter anymore. I can do whatever I want with my body. It doesn't really matter. Everything is permissible for me. You might have heard that phrase uh, that, that Val read for us. It's spiritual things that really matter, they would say. So they would go to the temple prostitutes. They would have dinner, little little dinner party, and after dinner party, they'd head on down to the temple, and they would go and see the temple prostitutes. That was a common thing in Corinth. To Corinthianize was the term. Food for the stomach, they'd say. Oh, it's all physical. It doesn't really matter. Or they'd argue in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, it's good for a husband not to have sexual relations with his wife. It's good. But Paul responds by saying that what we do with our bodies matters. Marriage matters. We were bought with a price. It's the cross of Christ. Remember the love story? History is a love story. We were bought with a price, so honour God with your bodies. It matters. The secular view says our bodies are more like going down to the local park. Off we go. A union of bodies is, well, it's just a union of bodies. It's just physical. You can have sex, you can play tennis, you can kick a footy, you can ride a scooter. It's all the same, it's just physical. There's nothing sacred about bodily unions on the world's view. Of course, we know that's not right. We know it's not right. If you force a game of tennis on me, well, that's just odd. <laughs> what are you doing? I can live with it. But if you force sex on me, well, you're a rapist. We know that when sex goes wrong, it doesn't just feel, feel like a grazed knee at the skate park. It feels like desecration. It feels like a, a, a violation of a holy space. We know that our bodies are more like temples. final foundation of the Bible's view of sex. Sex is proclamation. You're thinking, well, oh, this is getting really weird now. <laughs> Stay with me, will you? Stay with me. See, sex in its biblical framework, and that's what we've been looking at, is not just procreation or recreation. It's proclamation. I'll say that again, because there's some big words there. It's not just procreation or recreation, it's proclamation. Because marriage is the context for sex, the best sex, remember our boundaries, sex, marriage, tells of the greatest love story culminating at the cross. It witnesses to, it tells of, it proclaims to the self-giving love of God to his people. Not taking, but giving. That's how sex proclaims. It tells of that just like the God who gives. It proclaims, it tells of. So sex is proclamation. 
But friends, just like marriage is proclamation, and we can sum that up by saying it reflects the eternal marriage between Christ and the church, so singleness is also proclamation. Let's not forget that. Singleness reflects the eternal relationship between us and God. It anticipates a heavenly future, eternal future, where there is no earthly marriage. I guess in a sense we've talked a lot about marriage today, and, and, and you can see why. But when it comes to being single or married, let's not forget here, let's not forget God's word to us, and it comes later on in 1 Corinthians 7, one is not better than the other. Both are gifts, whether single or married, the Bible says to us. Okay, so we've got five foundations. Here they are, five foundations of um, the Bible's view on sex. If I've missed one out, come and tell me. I can add, to, add another. Um, God's framework for the best sex. God is love. History is a love story. Gender is a gift. Your body matters. Sex, marriage is proclamation. Now, I've officially retired from playing rugby. It took me a while to get to this point. I had a season last year. I finished up and, um, well, I, I, this is how it worked out. I didn't get a commemorative pen. I got nothing. I didn't even get a tie or a jacket or anything like that. I played for 20-something years and I got nothing. All I did, I just limped to the bench. <laughs> I limped to the bench with a torn hamstring and a sore shoulder. But I do take comfort in the fact that it happened while I was chasing my son. You know that? It was, it was you, you, you made a break down the right-hand flank there on the, on the wing, and I was chasing you, and I pulled my hammy. That was it. So that would be the story of my end of my rugby career. I was chasing my son. But I tell you, so I, I do want to make a confession that over my 20 or so years of playing this sport, when I came to rugby... I didn't always play within the rules, within the boundaries. Uh, some of you might seem shocked by that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Others of you are nodding and saying, yeah, I totally believe that about Graham. <laughs> totally believe it. Yeah, I made some mistakes. Now, I never got sent off, unlike someone else in my family. Ooh, Wes. Um, but... Um, <laughs> I never got sent off, right? Never got given a yellow card, so I never got this poor Argentinian guy here. But sometimes I lacked self-control. Sometimes I tried to get away with something, hoping that no one would see. Sometimes I generally thought that I was right, but in truth I was wrong. I made mistakes. I stuffed up. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we cross God's good boundaries. Jesus knows this. He knows this. And the funny thing is, he cares as much about how we play rugby as our sex lives. We can ignore him and his good ways in both. You see, he knows sometimes we'll get it wrong. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Uh, the John 7 and 8 reading. Jesus doesn't condemn the woman. He forgives her and then he tells her to stop. Friends, that's why Jesus came. That's the grace of God. 
He came for our mistakes. He came for when we get it wrong. He came to save sinners like you and me. He died so we can be forgiven. If you've got it wrong in the context of sex or in the context of rugby or whatever, Jesus offers you a second chance. Third, fourth, just like he did with the adulterous woman. He offers you forgiveness. He invites you to come to him. Repent. And in Jesus' words, Jesus says, leave that life of sin. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, tells of the state of the Christian person who puts their trust in Jesus and asks for forgiveness. Washed, sanctified, justified. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Washed, clean, gone, sanctified. God's making us more like Jesus. Justified, just as if I've never sinned. That's the good news of following our Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we pray? And, uh, and don't forget to, if you've got a question, write it in the comment box. Lots of things I couldn't cover today, clearly. But if you've got a question, write it in the, um, put in the comment card, tear it off. And uh, put it over in the box over there. And I'll try to leave some time in next week's service to, to tackle a few of these issues. Um, we'll see what, what comes about. How about we pray? Father, we, uh, we thank you that, uh, for all the gifts you've given us. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for singleness. Lord, we pray that you would, um, uh, with the gift of your spirit, you would help us to become more like the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that Jesus came and died and rose again for our sin to enable forgiveness and a right relationship with you. Lord, we're sorry that we do make mistakes and we get it wrong. But we know, Lord God, that you are a God who forgives and we thank you. So please forgive us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us in the Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing.